0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. How many people weren't able to be here last week? I know there were a couple. Oh, quite a few. Well, welcome. So make sure that you're on the Buddhist Studies email list. If you've been in the Buddhist Studies class recently, then you're probably getting the emails. You can find them, and in, in, in any case, on the Buddhist Studies webpage. And if you don't know what that, where that is, just go to the resources, and one of the links under the resource page is the Buddhist Studies page. And there's, uh, I think in the right column, the archive of all the emails. So you can get all the emails that have already gone out. I'll send another one out. I think there's two already that were sent out last week and before the class began. So tonight we'll have small groups which are not optional, so <laughs> please stay for those. And please wear a name tag. You can get one on your way out when, after we divide up the group. So as you noticed in the guided meditation tonight, Uh, It's really important um, taking the class both in the guided meditation that we do at the beginning but then when you're practicing at home to at least have some of the time that you're doing your formal sit at home feel empowered to see directly see directly learn something about what is refuge, what is not refuge. Because You know, ideas, thoughts can be quite powerful, but they are ultimately hollow. You know, there's like the story from the Old Testament about making the golden calf. You know, the idea that the calf, the golden calf, the beautiful artwork, or the some of you it might be the boundary waters in some natural place or... A relationship or whatever it is the ideas about these things, the idea about love, the idea about emptiness, the idea about these ideas can be quite sublime and moving. They can make the hair raise on the back of the neck. They can create real actual rapture coursing through the body. But it's not a resonant it's not a Stable kind of freedom or happiness. Whatever that freedom that the heart seeks, that the mind seeks, it has to be something that's here and now, not something that the mind constructs, no matter how beautiful. I mean, when you think about the horrific things our mind can construct, well, The opposite is equally true. The mind can construct really sublime, beautiful, enticing, rich, healing states of mind, images and thoughts about things. But that world is endless of, you know, scaring ourselves and then imagining something that's very beautiful and healing and And then that changes, and then. And really, that's what in Buddhism we mean by samsara, the endless play of, you know, the mind constructing something and then responding or reacting to its construction. And whether that construction is just like in your own mind or in a group of our minds, in a society's mind, or in your, you know, so it doesn't really matter if it's sort of a shared construction like a lot of our cultural meaning that we construct or it's something very seemingly personal just like only in your mind not reflected in other people's mind. It doesn't really matter. What matters is it is it a trustworthy refuge. So whether you like the way we practice tonight and I think Steve recorded that, so the guided meditations are being recorded. You can use that until you don't need to use the guided meditation. But one way or another, whether you use something similar to what we did tonight or you find your own way, the study of the refuges, we want to put some time aside, hopefully every day, where you feel like, or whatever a refuge might be, it's not really much of a refuge if it isn't here and now. If it isn't something the mind can, the heart can turn to or open to or connect with or recognize here and now, how could it be a refuge if it weren't available? If it, like, later, you get it later when you're good, when you're good enough. When you finally get your act together, you know. But when you finally put aside your distracted mind, then you get the refuge. We believe these so well because it's kind of part of our worldly system. You know, and this is where shame is born. You know, if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, if you're a good person, then you get your reward. You get to go to heaven. But if you're bad... You get You get that other place. <laughs> you get to be punished, and you deserve it, because you were bad. And it goes on and on like this. So what we'll notice is that whenever we're in that game, it's stressful, because even if we're in heaven, it's stressful because we know heaven can be revoked. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's about as much heaven as you deserve. Now you, you know, are whatever. So, so much of the path is uh, n- learning how to be interested in refuge. Or if you don't like that word, find another word. Interested in peace. Interested in freedom. I mean, all these words are going to be a little bit off. Kamala, a master's and someone I teach with and an important teacher of mine over, especially in the early years of my Vipassana practice. um, You know, we always think about like, well, what are we going to call it? Because the retreat centers always want a title for the retreats, for the residential retreats. So we're always thinking like, okay, what are we going to call the retreat? And so one of the things that, you know, and then we'll use a title for a year or two and then you know, we kind of need to mix it up. So one title we've been using or starting to use now is The Sure Heart's Release, something that comes out of the tradition, The Sure Heart's Release. I like the word release because it has a visceral sense and because that visceral sense of release, relaxation, peace is something that's more ordinarily, recognizable. right? We have a sense of what it's like for energetically to be bound up and what it's like for that sense of being bound up to be released, to be put down. Any questions about um, meditation practice as we go forward for this eight-week class? How to bring the refuge to mine. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about the formal uh, way in the Theravada tradition that we talk about refuge as Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. But before we sort of looking, uh, start looking at the different facets of what refuge is, just to en- feel empowered in our experience. Whatever any wise person would mean by refuge, it would have to be something that's here and now in the space of the present moment, in the space of the mind or heart in the present moment. It has to be in our subjective experience. It has to be available. Otherwise, it's a setup like there's this great thing but you don't have the right ticket, you know. You haven't you don't have the key. But it's different when, when what we're told is it's here and now. Then there's a sense of, I don't know if ownership's the right word, but we're interested. We're, we have energy to do the work of listening, opening, attuning, and basically learning, like I was suggesting in the guided meditation, the difference between you know whatever the mind is doing, however my mind is relating now to the present moment, it seems to be conducive to getting tight and bound up. This is not, it <clears throat> doesn't seem like a refuge. Whatever it is the mind is doing doesn't seem helpful. It doesn't seem to be connected or related to the sure heart's release, or the unshakable release of the heart. Peace. I think I mentioned, I think last week, but uh, you know, in the suttas, the discourses that scholars are pretty sure are uh, less likely to have been altered from the time of the Buddha, the way the Buddha talks about the path and the way the Buddha talks about people who are far along or completed the path is the word peace. The characteristic of peace being Peaceful with the way it is. Being peaceful with the condition of being a human being, of having a body and mind. The heart being peaceful, or the heart being released, not reactive or bound up, not burdened by the conditions of the moment, but at peace with the conditions in the moment. So we can use that Like you could call that a pointing out instruction to see if that lines up, if that feels right as you track your experience. And of course, not just during the formal sit, but then all day long. And again, just the suggestion that refuge has to do with how the mind is understanding or how the mind, the heart is relating, how the mind or the heart is connecting. That's another pointing out instruction to check out. So that instead of refuge being a place we get to, it's more about how the mind is relating. And see, then it doesn't matter what the particular circumstances or conditions are because I can be relating this way, connecting, opening, understanding this way no matter the way the particular circumstances are. So I sent last week um, the article by Ajahn Jayasaro, one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. Hopefully you had a chance to read it. Just a few pages if you haven't read it. Uh, Faith on the Quest. And um, just a few things I thought would help us in our small groups a little later this evening when we break up. Because, uh, you know, in the first couple of weeks I thought it would be useful, uh, if you might remember that quote I read and I sent out to everyone last week from Jnanapanika Thera, this um, wonderful translator and Buddhist monk, Western Buddhist monk, but uh, ordained in the Sri Lankan Buddhist tradition, Theravada tradition there. A conscious act of will directed toward liberation based on knowledge, based on experience, and inspired by faith. So I thought one possibility for the small groups tonight is to really share, to look at now as I'm talking, and then to share those moments when in the way the mind was connecting, a lot of energy arose and in the mind, the heart was inspired. It's like, ah, so the mind understood something, the mind saw something, the mind recognized something, and the immediate characteristic was a lot of energy arose, a lot of aliveness, a willingness to show up, a willingness like, oh, it's just the opposite of despair and resignation, and thinking there's nothing to do with my life except finding interesting distractions. Because when we're inspired, right, I mean, that idea is, it's not only is there energy, but there's some direction to the energy we have when we're inspired. Oh, this is the way. This is what I want to do. This is what's important. This value I trust. <coughs> right? Right? So, I thought it might be nice in the small groups tonight to reflect on little and big moments over the last number of decades where there was a lot of that faith energy, that inspirational energy. And not so much even what, I mean, maybe briefly what the trigger was, what the circumstances were, but what was your experience of that energy arising? what kind of direction this is actually a good thing to do with your dharma friends it's sometimes we talk about it as you know sharing your dharma story how you found the dharma because by definition i mean whether you use that word dhamma or dharma you know finding yourself on a path or being a spiritual aspirant seeker right something had to happen Right, Because it's work, it's just much easier to kind of go along with consumerism or you know the just general thrust of our cultural vibe, whatever it is, save as much as you can, and then retire and travel or you know or whatever the sort of way your mind has been culturally conditioned, and to sort of oppose that or to Leave that behind to some degree and to use our to find some life energy to walk a different path to pursue something different than that. Well, that takes energy. So, how did we find our way? Wha- how did we find that energy? Even to come to Common Ground or take your first class or read your first book or get yourself to your meditation chair or cushion. How did that happen? Or to keep going on retreat or whatever it is you do, especially if you've been at it for a while and you realize how difficult the practice is, right? What keeps us coming back? What inspires us to keep putting one foot in front of the next, to keep showing up? What understanding, what experience, what insight, what did the mind see or open to or feel? That has given this life, this path, direction, and energy. Okay. So, with that in mind, I thought I'd just share a little. I'm hopefully some of you have read this article, but if you didn't, or even if you did, it'd be good to go it over it again. And I notice I wrote a note on my copy. First read it. It was actually in a newsletter. It's from a book of his um, that I sent the link for or the. Text that I sent come from the book, but this is an abridged article that was in Fearless Mountain, which is the newsletter of Abayagiri Monastery in Northern California. And I have a note here, which I think is important. For those with much skepticism, remember, rejecting something without investigation is just as much an act of blind faith as somehow feeling like there's something to wake up to, like a lot of us want to reject, like you know some sort of nihilistic faith in nihilism, <laughs> right I've taken refuge in nihilism, so that idea like that certainty that there isn't something to open to is an it's also blind faith, like just because you haven't seen that there's a refuge, doesn't mean there isn't a refuge. The question is, are we curious enough to keep an open mind? We have to, if we have a lot of faith that there's nothing to open to, nothing to see, nothing to wake up to, well, (laughs) nothing will happen. Because The dharma, this path the Buddha points to, the Buddha's teachings point to, it requires effort. In many places in the Buddha's discourses, he talks about it's a practice of effort or persistence. The mind, the heart needs to persist. Last week I spoke a lot about the necessity of humility. Right, There's no way to open authentically unless there's humility. If we think we know what we're opening to, we're not really opening. It's always a movement into the unknown. Otherwise, we're not learning. If we're opening to what we already know, that's not learning, right? That's doing something that's safe. We're going back to the known, are uh, usually our idea of what we think is going on, who we think we are, what we think this is all about, because it's familiar. So we need the energy of inspiration to walk the path, which is always all we ever have intuition for on the path is the next step. And every once in a while, the clouds clear, and we get a sense of where we're going. Oh... Peace or freedom, right? And then the clouds come back in and all we know is I trust that experience, that there is a path, there's a goal, you know, whatever word you want to know, or use rather. And we have this like one step at a time and like we were doing in our meditation, like as we take that step, as we relate in the way that we're relating, open in the way that we're opening, Is this conducive to being bound up or to the release? We're we're developing our intuition about what's skillful. What's a step toward peace? A step towards peace has the taste of peace. A step towards freedom has the taste of freedom. A step towards suffering has that taste. But if our mind is superficial, if we're distracted, we can think we can be telling ourselves a story that I'm going towards happiness, but we're not. We're really going towards stress. So here's this article, "Faith on the Quest," and a little bit in, Ajan Jayasaro says, "Faith has been uh, has been an unpopular word in some Western." Buddhist circles, especially with those people who felt bitter about their theistic upbringing and seeing in Buddhism something more scientific. I like the word faith and find confidence, the other popular translation for the Pali word sada, too mundane. But however this term is rendered into English, we must first acknowledge that we can't do anything without it, right? Because it's Faith is that energy of inspiration. Nobody can prove that there is such a thing as enlightenment. And so if we don't have faith that there is, our practice is unlikely to go very far. Faith clarifies the goal, focuses our efforts, and fills us with energy. Ultimately, it is wisdom rather than faith that moves mountains. But it is faith that impels us to move them in the first place and faith that sustains us through the inevitable frustrations that dog our efforts. And Now skipping around a bit, he writes, It's common among Buddhist practitioners, however, to realize that their profound trust and confidence in the truth of the Buddhist teachings is not matched by faith in their own capacity to realize that truth. Because the teachings often, you know, they just make a lot of sense. It's pretty rational stuff, especially if you're reading things that are well translated and some of the um, some of the dogma has been teased out. Right, it's very trustworthy with the Buddha's teaching about being mindful about the importance of this value of non-harming of taking responsibility for the stability and clarity of the mind about the tendency to have fixed views as being problematic always but it's very easy even though that may you know those teachings it makes a lot of sense rational i see other people really benefiting but it's very easy especially when we sit and notice how wild distracted our minds are it's very easy to think i just can't do this you know it's, i've got bad karma i'm really distracted person or i got a lot going on i got a new child or a busy job or i got to deal with my aging parent or you know my garden has so many weeds <laughs> you know whatever your terrible problems are I don't have any financial security, and that really has to be my first priority, or whatever it might be. I mean, these are very real things, on this relative level. So um, we can, each of us probably, can pretty quickly come up with some compelling argument. While uh, why I can't do the practice, my knees hurt, I got a weak back. But that's always been the case. I mean, everybody who's ever done this practice could make a compelling argument why they can't do it or why I'll do it later. I'll wait. In fact, it got endemic in Buddhist circle and Buddhist cultures um, over the centuries. And then there would always be a little bit of a reformation movement in Buddhism in these Buddhist cultures. And then again, it would sort of set in this very common pervasive idea that Maybe if there were a Buddha around, people could be really benefit from the practice. But not now. Maybe you would know this from being in Sri Lanka. People think, I'm going to generate a lot of merit. I'm going to do a lot of acts of generosity so that I get reborn in some future life when the Buddha's there to teach me, and then my waking up will be really easy. So this idea that, and this, this has, like for centuries, would be the sort of the general theme especially in lay culture, but also with the nuns and monks, too, where it was mostly about studying and less about, like, you know what? Circumstances are just not conducive for awakening. So I'll just really generate, I'll create a lot of good karma, a lot of merit, right? Do a lot of good deeds so that I'll have a more fortunate rebirth where I'll have, I won't have, will have knee pain or have a really good teacher, you know, or whatever it might be. There won't be any mosquitoes, <laughs> And then I'll get down to work and do, do the hard work of you know opening to the way it is. So, Arjuna or Saro writes here. You know that our, despite the trust and confidence in the truth of the Buddhist teachings, it's not matched by faith in one's own capacity to realize that truth. This lack of faith in our potential for enlightenment is crippling and unwise. The doubt is based on a mistaken way of looking at ourselves. Swallowing the myth of an independent eye gives us spiritual indigestion. We can't force ourselves to have faith, and we don't need to. We merely have to remove the wrong thinking that prevents faith from arising. Right, The faith that we can't do it. Right, We just need to loosen that screw. We don't have to tell ourselves, oh, I am going to you know, be enlightened in this set. We just need to abandon the idea that doing the practice doesn't make sense. Having that faith. right? And he, and he ends that sentence by saying, and start paying more attention to our experience. And then one more paragraph here. Our discouragement in the practice frequently comes from trying to imagine how this limited I, you know, oh poor me, with my knee pain or whatever, could possibly realize the unlimited how could this bounded self realize the unbounded? Having posed a question based on a false, on false premises, that I is real, we naturally conclude with a false answer, that my realizing nibbana can never happen. In other words, how could little old me ever realize something so marvelous? The gap seems too wide. Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? this person doesn't realize the truth. Rather, it's through understanding that this, what this person is, that truth is revealed. This realization involves, in the words of the Buddha, upturning something that has been overturned. Or Asaida Utejaniya says, insight is always surprising. Right? We upturned something that was overturned, but we didn't realize until the moment it flipped over that it had been overturned, that we were misunderstanding, like, how could this neurotic mind become free? But see, like he says, it's not this neurotic, this neurotic mind isn't what becomes free. Wisdom understands that this neurotic mind is just what it is. It's just that, those habits being known. And then, that understanding, with that understanding, the mind ceases to cling, ceases to take the neurotic activities of the mind as self. It's just something being known. Restlessness is being known. Greed is being known. Hatred is being known. Doubt is being known. Nothing new is created. What occurs is a radical reappreciation of experience and recognition of something that has always existed. The deathless element is also a birthless element. It's not something that is brought into existence. Instead, those things which conceal it, which conceal or envelop it, are removed. If we can grasp this point, then we can feel a new surge of energy. We can see that any sense of inadequacy we might feel is founded on attachment to the conventional self as being ultimately real. At this point, right, because that's what we have faith in. And when we have faith in this sense, this limited sense of me, permanent sense of me, then it makes sense to seek happiness through giving that sense of me what it wants and getting rid of the things that that sense of me doesn't want. We're... Seeing the idea of me, this permanent sense of me, as the master and determinant of my happiness. And that's always going to be experienced as stressful. So the last sentence here. At this point, our effort and energy, our persistence in practice is greatly strengthened. And the nagging doubt about our capacity to follow the path to its end may even disappear in a flash. We start to give what it takes. So you might want to read the article. So again, in our small groups tonight, I thought sharing moments of inspiration, the mind saw something, the mind experienced something, the mind was relating in some way that something that was overturned at least momentarily got right, turned up right. Right. Or another image the Buddha used a lot in his teaching, even if a room, like a house or whatever, boarded up, windows and doors boarded up, even if the darkness in that space was like that for decades, 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 as soon as somebody walks in, opens the door, sunlight comes in or turns on a light, the darkness is immediately overturned. doesn't matter if it's been dark for three centuries. As soon as the light goes on, no darkness. And this is the quality of insight, of sort of getting a sense, awakening to the path. In a way, that's mostly what we're waking up to. Like what to do, what the path is about. Are we serving the false sense of a permanent self or are we serving this intuition of release? Peace. The peace of letting things be or the peace of letting go. The peace of allowing. What are we serving? And just keep noticing. like When, I, when we're serving this, boy, it's tight. When we're serving this, boy, it feels trustworthy. It feels right fills in the direction of peace. So sharing moments of inspiration, sharing your confusion about refuge, sharing anything that's come to mind about refuge, how faith pushes your buttons, the term faith pushes your buttons. So anything, of course, is appropriate from your study. Maybe some of you have picked up Tara Brach's book at Moon Palace Books or gotten your own e-copy of it by Brock, the title is True Refuge. There's also the book that I s- the link for Ajahn Tanisaro's book called Refuge that you can download for free, a wonderful book on the three refuges, a more traditional rendition, description of the three refuges that you can read as well. And then I'll be sending articles like this one by Ajahn Jaya or short quotes, um, and I'll send another email tomorrow with some material in it. So if you haven't been in these small groups before, let me do a quick reminder. I know it can feel a little tight, but it's nice to have a little structure. It really protects the group. So please listen about the basic structure for these groups, especially if you're new to Buddhist studies. I'll, in a minute, divide the group. So there'll be three people per group. Sit close, so you don't need to use a loud voice. It's nice if, like, you're all sitting on the floor or all sitting in chairs, so you're kind of at the same level, that kind of... Feel more respectful. First thing you do is make sure you say each other's na- your, you say your name to each other. Even if you have name tags, have a name tag because even though you may say your name, if you're like me, you forget it very quickly. And this is a just a nice gift to be wearing name tags on the on the weeks where we have our small groups. So you say your name. You decide the order. Person one goes first. You get three minutes even if you don't have three minutes of things to talk about to the two other people in your group. So it's really okay, and it's important for everybody in the group to normalize the silent spaces that might arise. Just relax in those spaces. We know how to be in silence together. And then if you're the person speaking and you run out, then just reflect about the topic in that silence, because you might have more to say in a few moments. Yes or no, it doesn't matter, but if you do, then speak back up until your time is done. And so don't say, no, I'm done, please go. just It's really a beautiful thing to just have that time. And don't feel guilty if you just don't have much to say. Just hold that space and The other two people can really help hold. And one trick or skillful means is just to be intimate with the sensations of the body. It really helps to connect with each other, surprisingly. Because if you're really intimate with your body, you're really intimate with the present moment. And the present moment includes sitting close to two other human beings, having a conversation. And then after your three minutes, you can, if you want, it's up to you, do Anjali or just thank you, thank the person for their sharing. And then the next person will go for three minutes. Third person will go for three minutes. And then usually there's about five to seven, eight minutes for open discussion at the end. And then you can, that's the time to clarify what somebody said or connect what somebody said with your own experience. But why they're talking is not the time to ask a question or even really to do much in terms of gesturing or nodding. I mean, it's fine to nod, don't get tight about it. But you're just there in a receptive mode. You don't need to sort of feel like you have to hold the person's hand in some way. You're Just kind of creating a safe, kind space for the person to share whatever they have to share about refuge, about moments of inspiration in their life and what flowed from those moments, how they exist or operate or show up in your life now, maybe even many years later. And again, it could even involve moments of coming into the path from your past. Okay? So let's divide up. I'm guessing at least 75, maybe 80 people. So let's do 27. You're one, two, three, four. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.